What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, I'm coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, a.k.a. Nerdville East. And my special guest is the legendary Miles Kennedy. Miles, let me let me just tell you something. It feels we, we, we've grown so close recently that it feels like we've done this twice. <laughs> it's strange. It does, doesn't it? Amazing. Amazing. It, it's like we did it before as a test. And then we just said, man, I just can't get enough of this virtual interview thing. We can't get enough of each other. Exactly. So thank you again for being a guest for the first time. <laughs> My pleasure. It's great to be back. Or little, here, yeah. <laughs> yes, you know. The backstory is was we did this a few weeks ago, and um, our the audio visual department uh, the, the, there was a lack of audio, so it was, it was just it was a silent film. I was going to hire a <laughs> piano player and you know maybe show it in a few movie theaters. Right. <laughs> Thanks for being here. You know, one of the things I I, I I've been starting off. I asked everyone um, on this show, from any, anybody from journalists to to rock stars like yourself, is where did the, the 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 desire to make music a career start? Like, because I always say we all start in our bedrooms, and you know everybody has a guitar or they hear a record, and you know you go from a casual listener to like now I'm obsessed with it, right, and I can't right. live with myself for not doing it. You know what was that? What was that gateway for you? What was the vehicle? That's a good question. Because um, it kind of went in stages with me. I was raised have very realistic expectations <laughs> you know the idea of getting to be a recording artist and tour the world that seemed very uh, out of out of reach and not realistic because the odds are really stacked against you so it was it was a gradual um it was a gradual evolution um but i think that the need to play music was so intense with me just to have that outlet and that ability for self-expression um, you know, I, I remember my, my, my stepfather, we would have these occasional discussions as I was, you know, in my later teens, you know, what are you going to do? And initially I went to, to music school for two years and that's all I took. Just no, no English, no math, just music theory, big band arranging. Like I was obsessed with me, was just obsessed with it. And then I remember talking with my, my, my father and he was like, okay, you know, after I was like 21 and things were, you know, I'm, I'm, I was getting by, you know, I was playing in cover bands and I was teaching guitar and whatnot, but there was always the, when is this going to end discussion? Right. So when are you going to go back to school and, you know, become an English teacher, or history teacher, what? Cause my, I come from a family of, of teachers and preachers. <laughs> Every, everybody's in the education system. My stepdad's a, is a, is a minister. And, um, so it, it was one of those things where I just couldn't, I couldn't hang up my cleats. I just couldn't, I hit 25 and I was like, ah, I, I got to keep going. I got to, I just couldn't, couldn't stop. So here we are. You know, I mean, you, you, you were born in Boston, you grew up in Idaho and in Spokane where you Correct. reside, you know, it's not like Spokane is crawling with A&R, you know, record company executives looking for the next big thing. You know, the, 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 right, the, right. the, the deck is a bit stacked. You know, I mean, not only do you have to, you know, learn your craft, not only do you have to, you know, hone your skills and whatever you you have to like now you have to get out of spokane and get noticed you know right. that's that's a that's an uphill battle i mean how did you i mean you started in um like a prog not a prog but like a jazz uh instrumental 
band called Cosmic Dust, which, you know, if I know anything about the jazz instrumental business, that is that is a sales juggernaut. You can you, you're killing it. It's platinum, you know, <laughs> the first day, you know. Yeah, right. From that to like, you know, being one of the great rock frontmen, you know, of the last 25 years. I mean, it's like it's it, it's, you know, it seems like a giant leap. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, so there were a series of events that, that happened, and a lot of it was just, you know how it is, you're right place, right time, and right. You, what you try to do is establish a certain, you put in the time, you would shed, you get to a point so that if you have that opportunity, you're ready to go. And um, so I was, um, to make a long story short, I, the right People saw some some I guess saw me for lack of better. I was playing in Seattle because I was I was playing all over the Northwest when I could with whether it was with Cosmic Dust or I had a band called Citizen Swing and then a band called the Mayfield Four and so I'd hit you know I'd go over and do Seattle and then Portland and and wherever I wherever I could with with the bands I was playing in and fortunately Susan Silver uh, a gentleman named Eric Hoppy and Susan Silver who were Silver Management who managed you know Allison Chains and Soundgarden and all that um, they kind of took me and the band I was in at the time, the Mayfield four under their wing and, and helped us get our first record deal, you know, and that was, that was really the, 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 the big shift for me. Yeah. You were signed to, to Epic records. Correct. And we were, uh, we're, we're label, label brothers. We were label mates. The most, I, I mean, you probably visited 550 Madison Avenue a lot. Probably yeah. a lot more than I was ever invited, but the thing that struck no. me about the office was 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 always like the commissary was impressive. I'm oh, like, yeah. I was like, wow, this is this is big time. You're on Madison Avenue, in New York yeah. City, you know. And you made you made two albums um, with the Mayfield Four, and you were touring. And where did you find the 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 voice? Because you know you're a great guitar player, but you know as a, as a singer, you're just you're like, where does that come from? I mean, like, did you sing as a kid? Did you? You know, did you have a vehicle to kind of figure that out or were you just singing at home to Led Zeppelin records? <laughs> I was well, I was I didn't really I kind of took it for granted, Joe. I didn't really think anything of it. I thought I just assumed everybody could sing and and uh, I was more interested. I was obsessed with the guitar. I was all I cared about. And um, I think for me, you know, would sing, you know, Kumbaya by the campfire in church camp or whatever it was. Right. Um but I didn't really take it that seriously. And it wasn't until I started writing songs and I, and being in Spokane, there was a finite of, of people to, to draw from, to, to play, to play, you right. know, to sing for your band. So I was like, well, maybe I should just try this myself, give it a shot. Now there was a big problem in that, in that I was kind of, I'm not really hardwired to be a front man in the sense that I don't like, I, that's what I love about being a guitar player is you, you play, you step, but you're back by the drummer, hanging out, playing rhythm, and maybe right. you go up and do a solo for a few bars, and then step back. It's perfect for a, for, for a guy like me. Right. But the idea of being the guy in the middle of the stage and like, there's just too. That seemed like a lot of responsibility that I would screw up. Somehow, you know. Right. <laughs> so so yeah, I had that. That was a real. That was a real challenge for me. And to be honest with you, after doing it for. I don't know, I guess coming up on 30 years now, it's still a challenge. There's still days when I'm like, man, if I could just put on the guitar and go out there and just hang out by the drummer, I would be cool. <laughs> I, 
I love being the side guy. I, you know, like, you know, when, when I, you know, I'm in a band with uh, Glenn Hughes and, he, you know, obviously <laughs> I'm not singing. Um, and, you know, and I just love, I just love like, like yourself. I love just being the guitar player, you know? And, and so, you know, one of the things that I have to do to kind of get around that firewall of being the front person is, is I have to like get into character. You know, okay. Right, it's, it's like it's whether the suit and the sunglasses, and you know that's why when people meet me on the street, they go, "You look nothing like the guy on the stage." I go right, because that's <laughs> the character. Is there is there a Miles Kennedy version of that where you go, okay, you know, I'm this mild mannered, super talented musician, but now we're 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 about to headline Download Fest, and I got to go out there with a guy in a top hat and a Les Paul and, and I got to entertain 50,000 people. Is there a process to get into that mode where you, okay, I'm Miles Kennedy, the front front man of this group. Yeah. We, we actually carry out like a phone booth and I go in the phone booth and a right. swirler. No. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's a really good, and, and, and I love the, the persona that you put on. I think it's, it's brilliant. You no, know, that it totally works. And, and I think that for me, I'm still working on who that guy is. Uh, and it's funny when I first started playing with Slash, who's the master of that, you know, he's yeah. got this, this thing that he's, um, that he's really perfected. And, uh, and, and so to stand next to him and be cognizant of that was, was a real challenge in the beginning, especially going, going up there without a guitar on. So, you know, if you <laughs> early on when we did like the first few tours in 2010, like we did the festival run and starting, I think in May or June, I think it was May of 2010. And occasionally on my, in my, through my Instagram feed, someone will put up footage from that era and things right. that I was wearing. Yeah. Whoa. What was I thinking? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's excruciating, like some crazy scarf that I probably borrowed from my wife. And so, I mean, it was just, it was all grim. So uh, yeah, it's still evolving. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is a process. It's also, you know, um, one of the things that, you know, when I watch you sing and, and you can tell, you know, like when you're up there on stage, you go, there's a guy who's put in his 10,000 hours, not only as a musician, but on stage as well. You know, do you find every gig, good or bad, is a, is, is a learning experience for you? Like, you know, in the sense, like, the good gigs are great because it, everything went as planned. To me, the most, you know, I learned the most from the ones that went to shit, literally, after three minutes, you know? And you're like, okay, now i got to figure this out. Yeah, that's the beauty. Yeah, see, I think it's it really is how you frame those those bad gigs. And I've learned to do that as well, where, okay, that was a rough two hours. What can I learn from that? Right. And, and I'm, I'm learning to incorporate that element into everything I do musically, you know, that I've been in here demoing for the last five months and there were songs that I'd be chasing down and spending all the time, putting all the parts, you know, programming all the drums and, you know, putting this, you know, you know some of these songs would take over a hundred hours to get everything done when it's all, you know, just, just in the pre-production. And I'd be like, oh, that was a total waste of time. You know, what were you thinking? But but it's it's that it's like well you learned what not to do next time, you learned to trust your gut on this particular kind of song or approach to arranging or whatever it is, and now it's part of your it's it's part of your toolkit. You don't do that again, or you do do that again. And I think that's really important as as an artist to to have a good understanding of how to harness that. Yeah, um, you know it's it's a it's a it's just it's just every hour you spend with a guitar or you know, perfecting your craft to me is worth it. 
you know, and and good or bad. And, you you know, like you, like, like you said, you, you do learn a lot from the things that don't go as planned. And you spent a whole week on a song. And you're like, man, wasn't that very good? You know, <laughs> right. I more guitars and more guitars. And you're like, you're still going to fix the song. Tell me, like, when you were with the Mayfield Four, you were out there touring, and one of the bands you you were supporting, um, among a few others, was Creed. Mm-hmm. And and you was that how like Mark and and the gang, you know, got you on their radar as far as uh, you know, like they put this band together, Alter Bridge, which is super successful, you know, post Creed, and they called you for the gig. I th- yeah, I think that's how I initially got on the ra- radar. What's interesting is we didn't, you know, we didn't hang out a lot. I got to know our drummer Flip a little bit, mm-hmm. um, but overall, you know, uh, it, I was really shocked when I got a call in, you know, late 2003. And I was like, wow, I didn't even realize that they'd even heard heard, heard us as we were, you know, you know open because we were the first of three bands. It was us and a band, another uh, Sony band called Fuel, who had right. who had some hits at the time. Great guys and. Um, and Creed was just, it was their first record and they were just starting to explode. I mean, it was just, you could just see it. It was like, wow, these, these guys are definitely doing something that, that is connecting with people. Right. So yeah, we were just traveling in a, in our van, a 15 passenger club wagon that we bought with our record advance and our tra- pulling our trailer. And you right. know, it was <laughs> being our own techs. Like yep. I'll never forget. We were in, um, we were somewhere in the, maybe it was in Ohio and we were playing an outdoor venue and we were. It, oftentimes, as the as the first of three bands, you get very little sound check, and so it was the day was really running running behind. So the sh- we started at like seven thirty, and we're st- we're up there. The it, there's like I don't know, probably three thousand people in the venue, and we're setting up our gear and getting ready. And I run back at seven twenty nine, and run back and grab my guitar and tune it up real quick, and I run back out and go up to the microphone and I hear this girl in the front go, look, the roadie's got a band. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I tell you, there's nothing that deflates any semblance of rock star like on a festival stage after you get done going, thank you, Toledo, you guys have been great. Downbeat, big, big applause. And then you have to roll up your own cables and grab your own <laughs> amp and drag it off the stage, you know? Right. That, no matter how, like you're in this moment, you're like, oh my god, this is fantastic, and then reality sits in, you know, and you're just like, were you? But worried? it saves so much money on the crew. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, <laughs> and it saves people space in the van. You can only exactly. get about six people in there comfortably. Um, were you worried when you joined Alter Bridge that it could be perceived as, for lack of a better term, well, was like you know, the members of Creed and a new lead singer, almost like a, a spite band? so to speak, you know, which it's not. I mean, it's it's its own thing. It's totally different music. It doesn't sound like Creed. You guys made it your own. Were you worried? Did you have trepidations about joining a band like that that was so big without the, you know, and then they moved on from, from their singer and, you know, all of a sudden you're the front guy for a band that's been selling arenas for the last five or six years? Yeah, there, were, there was definitely a lot of processing, you know, when I taught, would, would discuss it with my wife, you know, is this, is this the, is this the right thing to do? I, I didn't, I didn't know because I, I had the feeling that it was going to be a little controversial and I don't, I'm, I don't like conflict or controversy. I'm not that, I'm just not that guy. So I was like, well, I could be stepping into a, an interesting scenario. And am I ready as a human being to, to deal with that? And 
so I, so I, I think that initially it was, do you remember in the eighties when Coke changed the formula, you had new Coke for a while. Yes. It was, I was kind of like, I was the new ingredient. And, and, right. and, and so there was, I think, and I do think that initially people did just think of it as Creed with a new lead singer. And, and I get that. I mean, they had established their brand to such a degree that if the three of those guys are playing music and they do have a sound, not just Mark's guitar playing, which I, which I love. I love that he, he has a, in his rhythm approach, he has this, this definite thing that he's carved out for himself, but also Brian and Scott as a rhythm section, they have like this heartbeat that is very much them. They're, right. they're, you know, the way he's flip, you know, where he puts two and four and then Brian's bass lines are very unorthodox and very cool. So I, they have a thing and right. to sort of step in and sing over the top of that, I knew that it, it was inevitable and it took a few years, I think, to kind of shake that initial, you know, that little, that, that initial uh, stigma or whatever you want to call it. Because you were, I mean, um, not that we've had this conversation before, but, uh, you know, before you joined Alter Bridge, you were approached by Velvet Revolver to come down and, you know, it's how you met Slash and, and everything and, and, you know, just singing and you, you, you kind of said, I'm, you know, I'm not ready for this. You're a bit burned out from the road, a little burned out from the process. And it was just like, I don't want to get involved in another thing right away. You know, um, how do you think, do you, how do you think a Velvet Revolver with Miles Kennedy fronting it would have sounded, would it have sounded different than, than with, with Scott Wheeland or, or, did they have the songs already and they were just looking for somebody to sing them? Well, it, when I, so it was 2002 when they reached out and I had four songs, demos with no vocals that, that I received. And it, it definitely sounded like what would become Velvet Revolver. Um, to answer your question, as a fan, because I really liked that band and right. I also, I loved Stone Temple Pilots. Um, and I think Scott, was a really brilliant front man. Yeah. And so I, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. I just as a fan, I, I, there's just a, there's an element of danger that was there that I think was necessary for, right. for that band. I'm about as dangerous as a, a, a batch of Shih Tzu puppies, <laughs> right. you know? So I, 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 I think just as a fan, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. Because when when that for, when Slither came out, I was just like, "That's badass, <laughs> you know, that's cool." Exactly. You know, I think part of like what makes some bands great is the fact that there is a rub personality wise. You know, you can almost hear the arguments in the backstage <laughs> right. on the record. You know, you can hear the bottles being thrown against the wall and and people quitting on stage. You know, and I. Think, you know, it makes for it makes for it makes for a sound. You know, it's like you know, we hear Aerosmith. You go, I can hear them fighting on this record. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's one of the, one of those things. Tell me about you know, I didn't I didn't uh, I didn't realize you were in the film Rockstar. How did you get that gig? I think ultimately I owe it to um, fantastic one of my favorite music producers, uh, Brennan O'Brien. Okay, yeah, I think he I think he's the guy that kind of got the ball rolling there because he mixed the first Mayfield four record and then he was friends with one of the producers of the film. I get, I think the guy who's in charge of the music, I'm, I'm not hundred percent sure, but I guess they were having a conversation and they were looking for this character for the end of the movie who would actually sing the part, <clears throat> but would act in it as well and be this guy, Mike right. Thor, God of Thunder. 
And and so I got a call from my manager and I was in Spokane working on demos for what would be the second Mayfield 4 record. And I never acted a day in my life. And I was just like, what? Oh, so I'll give it a shot. I'll throw my hat in the ring, but this could be an absolute disaster. Um, but it ended up being something really, really cool. And I think I've never been in a film since, but for for me to get to step into the into that into the Hollywood world and see and especially at the time that see the magnitude of the film industry and like how they do things if you juxtapose it next to the music industry and all right. the size of the crew and the all you know it was insane but it was it was great and I I um I, I was a little embarrassed wearing the outfit I'll never forget uh, one night we were shooting and they had a lot of people came down for so you had the, the part where, where there's the dialogue and I'm behind the stage talk with Mark Wahlberg's character. And that was shot on a different occasion, right. but then there was the, where, where they needed a crowd and the stuff on stage and where he pulls right. me up on stage. And so, so they brought in, there were a lot of people who showed that showed up for that. They actually had bands playing real bands in between takes to, to bring in uh, rock fans and whatnot. And a lot, I remember a lot of people came, uh, just to, I guess, watch that. And one of the people who was there, because he was at the time was married to uh, Jennifer Aniston, was Brad Pitt. Right. And I remember shooting one of the one of the parts, and then walking back to my trailer with the wig on. And a lot of people think that's my hair. Like, ah, oh, man, right. you should grow your hair like that again. I can't. Grow, I don't have that yeah. kind of hair. Wish I did. <laughs> and and uh, I and I had the le- the fake leather outfit on, and I just I was just kind of like, oh, I don't know. I don't, I felt. It was fun. It was fu- it was fun, but at the same time, I was a little self conscious, a little self aware. And I remember Brad Pitt walked right by me and just kind of looked at me down and kind of kind of laughed. And I was like, "Well, you know, I can tell that to my girlfriend at the time, which was, you know, won me a few points." Brad Pitt laughed at me. <laughs> well, you know, the, the thing is, I mean, like, I mean, you must have like, you know, you're just you're called in to play this character in a movie. You're thrust into the, like this Hollywood world. I'm I'm sure somebody said, "Hey, Miles, let me. Can I get your sizes? Because we're gonna we're gonna you know we need we need it for wardrobe." And you're like, "Okay." And you're expecting like, "Okay, prop. Maybe they're gonna dress me up like Steven Tyler or whatever." And all of a sudden, you you go into wardrobe. And you're like, "Here's what you're wearing. Here's the wig." I mean, was this like the are you fucking kidding me moment of, of like all time <laughs> to a degree? Yes. I was just like, I, I, I think the biggest, my biggest concern was, can I pull, can I pull off the, um, the jacket with no shirt thing? Right. And funny little, I don't know if I've ever told this story, but you know, Mark Wahlberg, he's guys ripped. Right. Yeah. And apparently my character was trying to, it was idolized his character in the film. So three months prior to shooting, when I got the part and I was talking with the director and the casting lady about, okay, well, what do you want from me? Cause Mark Wahlberg, if I'm, if I'm emulating him, I'm, he's all, he's jacked, right? right. Do you want me to like, am I supposed to like get healthy and work? Cause at the time I was in my party phase. So I had a little bit of a beer gut going on. It was fantastic. Pizza. Um, you can have pizza. <laughs> A lot of pizza and right. beer, so um, so like no no we're gonna we're gonna talk to Mark because we want to be more like rock and roll and and that's so you know so no just stay the way you are and so I show up to the shoot and and he, he comes out of the trailer and he's just like you know he's ripped and I'm like well when you put him and me on stage it's definitely going to be there's the healthy guy and there's the the pizza eating beer drinker right that's great. <laughs> 
And, um, you know, uh, my friend Jason Bonham was in that movie. Yes. And I, I didn't realize it was him until there was that scene where he was getting the blood transfusion and it was and or something and i go that's jason right. you know because i recognize the voice there's a few inflections but up until that i mean you know like it was jason and zach and and you know did you did you mingle with those cats were they were they on set when you were cutting all that and you know do you have any stories about like you know seeing what the dynamic was between the actual movie band and and you know and in themselves you know yeah I did. And that, and that for me as a kid from Spokane, that was one of the, I think one of the big perks because right. these were all guys that I kind of grew up listening to, you know, right. and, and, it, and so to be able to be a part of that, even though I, you know, I had my first record deal at that point and was doing some touring, but I had never been in that kind of world with, 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 with people at that level. And so for me, it was just like, it was a total treat. And, and yeah, I, I, hung out with Zach a little bit. Zach was really cool. I mean, he, and he, I think he, he could see that I was, you know, really kind of starstruck and, and whatnot. And, and he took me in his trailer and, and, uh, I think we had a beer together on the last day of the shoot. And, and he gave me a box of his, str I still have some of those strings. He gave me a box of the G GHS strings he was using. And, right. and it was, so that was really great. And Jason was wonderful. Um, I, in between, uh, something we were working on one day i just sat down next to him we just started talking and i told him i said man because i sensed that he was so proud of his father's legacy and i yes. and i just wanted him to know what that legacy meant to me and he seemed so genuinely appreciative and i was like wow i really i really like this guy i mean i i think it's as somebody who also lost his father at a young age seeing how he continues to carry the torch proudly really yeah. I don't know. That really impressed me. And so, yeah, there were, there were a lot of really cool little moments that uh, I still cherish. Tell me about, tell me about what the music of Led Zeppelin means to you. I mean, like, you know, cause one of the things I, I just spoke to David Wilde from uh, Rolling Stone and we had, we, we had a, among other things, and we had this conversation about, you know, critic darlings versus popular bands. And when Led Zeppelin came out, I think you know, the first record got a horrible review, which was you were like, well, what are you listening to? You know, what I mean, like, it's like, did you get a did you get a copy of like Burl Ives pressed on a Led Zeppelin vinyl? <laughs> I'm like, I don't get it. Nothing against Burl Ives fans, please. Blabbermouth, don't click. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you know, like when I first heard Zeppelin one, I mean, it was like it, I thought the record player, well, it was a cassette deck, but I thought the machine was going to explode. The band was so kinetic and so vital sounding and had this just you could just see them coming out of nowhere and just world domination what was what was your reaction when you first heard zeppelin it was that reaction i interestingly enough the the reaction that the, there's an afternoon when i was about 13 where i heard the two pieces of music that would really kind of set send me on my way you know, right. I, I, as a kid, I loved, you know, Stevie Wonder's the first musical memory I have. And that was a massive deal for me when he was on Sesame Street. And, and I, I was obsessed with Stevie Wonder and Elton John was another one. Fast forward about eight, nine years later, and I'm in the backyard playing with my little brother, listening to the radio. Eruption into Girl, You Really Got Me comes on by Van Halen. I'm like, what is, what is that? You know, the, oh my God, I was just like mind blown. Probably an hour later, whole lot of love comes on and I just dropped the football or whatever we were playing. And it was like, uh, 
I mean, I just, I just, I mean, it was like, just, I probably just walked right up to the boom box and just stared at it. Right. Because I didn't understand what was coming out of it. There was, it was so like, especially when it got to the mental part, you know, yeah. or the, huh? Oh, and you're like, as a kid, you're like, I don't know what's going on, but that sounds really forbidden for one thing. Right. <laughs> it's like, is that, is that what, is that what sex sounds like? I don't know. It was dangerous. Right. <laughs> it, was, dangerous. it was great. Yeah. It was, it was a game changer for me. And I, I'm with you. I don't understand how critics were so cruel to them in the beginning. Cause to me, it's a no brainer from, from the get go. It's just like, these guys were, they were the alpha, the omega. They were, they were for me. It's like, geez. My favorite part of Whole on Love is the, is in the breakdown, you hear the alternate takes of the vocal. Right. They're ghosting and everybody thinks that they, they put echo or some sort of delay. It was actually, it was actually the, the alternate passes that just happened to be on the, the, the days of analog when you're bouncing tracks and you have what, six, at that point they may have had 16 tracks or maybe two eight track machines. And you know, it's, it's those happy accidents. How much of the stuff that you do um, both on record and on stage how much improv is involved? I mean, do you leave room for for interpretation in a live setting? And do you, you know, or do you you go, this is these are the parts, this is these are the marks we got to hit on this particular song? That's a great question. I was just thinking about that the other day. Like with with Alter Bridge, it tends to be though a fair amount of those solos are were just improvised in the studio, but they become such a part. I, I the way that I. I come from kind of the David Gilmore school of guitar playing with, with, right. with how I approach the melodic aspect. So if I were to change the melody on the solo I do on a song called Blackbird, I think certain, I think fans might not be down with that in a live context. So I try to stay true to that, you know? Right. And also I don't, we don't, we have very like finite spaces in the songs for the solos. Right. Now, if, if we were, expanding things and just like, okay, you go, go for a ride. You've got, you know, 32 bars, do your thing. Then, right. you know, I would probably like, oh yeah, we're going to try this today. We're going to superimpose a, a, you know, a, some sort of harmonic minor thing here again over the, you know, dominant, you know, right. dominant chord, blah, blah, blah. I, but you know, I, I love that. I love the improv. I mean, we've talked about that before about how improvising is so, I mean, there's a reason that when I listen to Miles Davis records and I'm like, that was a moment in time when I hear kind of blue and I'm like, that was just a moment in time that they captured. And it's so, so special or love Supreme, you know, John Coltrane, you know, there are things happening during, during all of that, that are, it's just magic because it wasn't planned out. It's just like they had, they had the head and then they right. had the, then, okay, do your thing for the rest of the song until we go back to the head again. Yeah, and I really missed that. I, 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 you know, I played in that fusion band early on, and we there was so much of that, and those those were some of the most musically rewarding. Now, not to take away from the, the other things I've been a part of, but it's a different kind of musically rewarding. Yes. You yeah. know, as you know, like when you write a really compelling song, and you're sitting there as it's being mixed, and you're go, you're like, wow, you know, this is this is what it's all about. But then you have those moments on stage when you're standing. At the you know on the at the Royal Albert Hall or whatever, and you're playing something that everybody's locking in, and you're like, this is never going to happen again, right? But it's like surfing. It's like this wave is never going to be here again. Not this wave, but I'm gonna I'm gonna stay very present. It's, there's a certain Zen to it, right? It's almost like a Buddhist psychology. You know, I I you know like we 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 leave some room for interpretive dance, as I call it on stage. You know, <laughs> and 
you know, but the, you know, there, then, then there's the times where you just like, you just got to get down to business, you know, I mean, like, we're not going to, we're not going to just going to break into a 30 minute version of Statesboro blues coming out of slow gin, you know, I mean, cause, cause the one night that it's great, the second time you try it, it's like you fall on your ass and people are like, well, what is this? What is this meandering stuff? I mean, how important is that? I mean, like, you know, the fans come see you play and they know those songs better than you do. You know, in some cases, in some cases, well, in my case, they they shout the words out when I when I forget the verse. <laughs> they do the same thing with me. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. you, you missed the verse. I'm like, so I'm like, come <laughs> up here and try this shit. You know, and you know, I mean, how cool is that when you when you you've created something that that means something to so many, and they sing it back to you. I mean, like that that's got to be a pinch me moment. You know, when the what used to be the Bic lighters or the now the phones come out and you're like, you know, they, they could literally sing the whole song back back at you. It's to me that's the. You know, out of all of it, that I think that's the thing that gives me the the greatest satisfaction. You know, right. you really feel like you were part of you were part of something. You created something that now is resonating in another human being's soul. And so, when you stand there in front of lots of them and they're singing it back to you, it's it, man, it's really heavy. And it, you know, it makes all the craziness where all the all of the look, the roadie's got a band moments worthwhile, <laughs> you know, right. it's like all those moments where you were coming up the ranks and you were falling down and, and you were struggling and, you know, you're, you're eating top ramen or whatever the crazy, you know, how, you're just getting by and, and you're asking yourself, why am I doing this to myself? But then you, you stand there 20 years later and you hear a song being sung back to you, or you see someone crying as you're performing and you're yeah. like, okay, it really, ultimately it all boils down to one thing. It's you have you feel like you have a purpose. Yes, it's really simple. And and you know, to some kid, could be anywhere. It could be Toledo, Ohio, or you know, Birmingham, England. You know, they had that boombox moment with your song that you had with Led Zeppelin. You know, and and it's it's a big responsibility because you know you live in the moment. It comes and it goes and it flows. And you know, talk to me a little bit. I was I was interested to read that you had you had, you've had you've had struggles with the tinnitus hearing and when did that show up and when did you realize that okay if i want to continue on being a being a musician i need to protect not only my instrument which is my voice and my hands but the receptacle of, of of that instrument which is my hearing interestingly enough it started um i'll never forget when i woke up and it, the, it wasn't going away. Normally it would go, you know, go, go away. And I was just panicked. It started right around when that, when the Velvet Revolver guys had reached out. In fact, I'm almost convinced that it might have started during that process. So I, on those demos they sent, um, I remember spending quite a bit of time pr probably over-focusing on it, not, uh, you know, overthinking it. And right. I was in my little studio and I would, back then I would crank my, I remember engineers would say that they would say, you, you run the loudest, um, mix to your headphones that we've right. ever done, which, you know, when you're young and dumb, you're like, cool. You think that's very rock and roll. And then you realize you're buzzing when you put them down there, they, they play it back and it starts rattling on the floor. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And I think through years of doing that, and it really kind of came to a head when I was working on some of those demos that I ended up never sending back to the Velvet Revolver thing. After I, I, I recorded these three songs, I think I did something too. And then I just said, yeah, I, I, 
well, I'm, I'm kind of jumping around here, but it was part of it was also realizing that suddenly I had this issue and it was freaking me out. And I saw an ENT and I'm like, oh yeah, you've got hearing loss now and you've got tinnitus and it's never going to go away. And, you know, have you heard the Pete Townsend story? And I'm like, oh no. So I was a little bit, and I'm a bit of a hypochondriac as it is. And I tend to hyper, hyper focus on, you know, imaginary diseases, but this was an actual thing that was now officially wrong. And so I think that that was part of, besides the fact that I was just burned out and I, and I also just didn't think I was the right guy for the job, but it was all of those things. And then discovering I had tinnitus, you know, I was like, I need to hang up my cleats for a while. And, and so, so fast forward 20 some odd, what is it? I don't know. When did that happen? So I guess coming up on 20 years later, I think ultimately what has saved me and made me so that I could do it is technology. I think it's, it's in-ears. Right. And back then, in-ears were good, but they're not what they are now. So you can run them at a volume now. You know, I use Jerry Harvey in-ears, and they're, they're wonderful. And and I use the, the JH-13s, and they're so nice and flat, and I hear just what I need to hear at around 4 to 6K to make it so that I don't have to turn it up too loud. I can get that air in my, you know, as you know, as a singer, so much of it about it is about it. So much of it is about hearing that mask, right, and that breathiness. Yeah, and, and and so you don't have to turn it up as loud. And I think that you know I keep things at a pretty reasonable volume with on my belt pack, and 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 that's really helped me help me sustain my career. Now you you're you're not an in ear guy, is that correct? I was for six months, and I was running my packet around. I started at seven and a half, and by the end of the show, I had it at eight and a half, maybe right. nine. And I get off stage, and my ears were hot to the touch. And I said, I'm going to do some, because I, because with the guitar, the way I play guitar, I use the headroom of the guitar and the amp. So in order to get the headroom, I had to, I had to crank it up so, so loud. And I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to wedges. And I've, I've just kind of stuck to wedges because most of the time I can, I can, I don't like directly in my, my, my face, you know, I I like to just kind of step to the side and get the get the whole picture and and it, it, it plus I can hear what's going on in the crowd and I can hear right, the mix right. out front and it's a, it's it's a little bit more of a I mean I, I have a dip at 4k which too, the, folks, the folks out there if you ever look at a 31 band EQ it's the upper register it's 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 high frequencies and I attribute that to those gigs at the baked potato and my friend Tal Bergman and his proclivity to bash on the China symbol in my left ear Yep. And, you, and then the next day you go, I can hear not much out of this, but I can hear out of that. And then you, you amplify that, no pun intended, over time. And, you know, it's it becomes a problem, you know. It, Do you know what the how big your dip is at 4K? Like how many dBs? I have 2 dB at 4K. Oh, that's not too bad. Considering my, my choice of occupation, that's, I, I, I feel like I'm ahead of the curve, you know. Do you want to know what mine is? Do you know how bad it was last time I had it checked ready for this? This is embarrassing, but I just got to say it. And right. I'm not proud of this, but it just shows you how bad it got. Right. It was on on one side, it was it was nearly 30. Whoa. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty significant. And and that's why it's amazing that I've been able to, you know, have a career. Like it's it it knocked out a good chunk of my hearing. And but you're right, the cymbals were a big thing cuz I when I came up the ranks as a kid, I would stand next to the drummer and to this day, it's not even because I, because I would stand next to a drummer. So when I hear vocals now, they're over to the left 
It's right. as if you've panned the vocals because there's more damage. I think there's more damage in this here. So I hear it's really weird kind of, you know, try if you're going to damage your ears, at least do it so it's even, so it sounds the same. Right, like flip sides every other night, you know? Exactly. On the right side. Do you have this problem? Because, like, uh, it used to drive my ex-girlfriend crazy because she thought I wasn't listening to her. And sometimes I use it to my advantage and sometimes not. Do you ever have this issue where you're sitting at dinner with your wife or whatever in a, in a loud restaurant? You can hear the chatter around you almost clear as day, but the but the close conversation almost gets phased out. You, you get ever, real good at reading lips. Yeah, and, and you keep going, what? I, I didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. And you're like, I'm right here speaking, but you can hear the conversation that the table next door is having. Right. You know, it's the weirdest phenomenon, you know, and it's, and it's because of these dips in the frequency, right. you know, and you're hearing. And, it, and it's, well, it's an occupational hazard, as they say. That's, you know, that's what you get. It's all right. Tell, it's, all, it's worth it. Tell me as a singer, because... You know, a lot of a lot of people go out there and they they have the best of intentions and they sing in their houses and they they sing in studios and then all of a sudden now they have five shows a week to to go out there and sell. And tell me about your process of not only you know maintaining the quality of your voice but maintaining the, the your your stamina because you know we've all had those four in a rows or three in a rows or five in a rows and you'd be like. This is going to be, this is a mountain to climb, you know, because you want to deliver 100% or whatever percentage you have. How do you maintain your voice out on the road? It's a great question. I, what I've learned, you know, it used to be I could do, back when I was in cover bands, I mean, I was playing, you know, sometimes six nights a week, four sets a night. And I'm like, how did I do that? But a lot of that's an age thing. And so as time goes on, I've, I've learned what my limitations are. And I don't think anybody in any of the bands or, or managers or agents probably like this, like this demand, but I've made it so it's no more than two in a row. Like right. I've had to cut that off. And I think a lot of it's just the way that I sing and the way I, you know, especially if I'm using the upper register a lot. Right. Upper register, even though the, I, I tr you know, because I studied with a guy named Ron Anderson, who's really Ron. gave me, Ron's great, right? Love Ron. Yeah. Total, total game change. If, if I hadn't had the opportunity to study with him, I, I, I'd have blown my voice out by now. So Ron Anderson, yeah. greatest. Um, but the, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I wish I could, I'd rather play seven nights a week. I don't like days off. In fact, yeah. frankly, Joe, I can't stand days off. I just want to play music all the time. And, but you just got it. You got to put it away. Let it rest. I don't talk a lot. I'm, I think people think I'm kind of standoffish. It's just I'm saving it. That's right. Uh, right. You know what happens on days off with me? I buy all this crazy shit you see on the wall. <laughs> like somebody book me seven days a week, please give me something to do. <laughs> you know. Uh, you know. Ron Anderson. When I was 20 years old, I was I was having one of those things. Every 10 years, your voice changes a little bit. And right. in my early 20s, I could, like you said, you could. I, I did. God, I think it was 25, and we recorded the Rock Palace DVD. That was show 13 in a row. And then we, wow. you know, we do those crazy tours in Europe where you got to pay your bills. And I kept losing my voice, kept losing my voice, and I was like, it's over. And I went to a guy named Joe Sugarman in Los Angeles. Right. Uh, Dr. Sugarman, yeah, I've been to him. And, and he's an ear, nose, and throat guy. And he goes, you have a nodule on your vocal cords. And, and I'm like, oh, here we go. You know, i got to have surgery. He's like... Go, go see this guy, Ron Anderson. And, and I did. And, you know, it, I mean, he charges lawyer rates per hour. I mean, there it's, it, that's a, that's a good, that's a good defense attorney per hour to go see him. And I went there and I still go 
And he, he was able to go, listen, you don't know how to sing. You don't know anything about the mask. You don't know anything about the head voice, the fundamentals of singing. And like, like in your story, I mean, I, I wouldn't be singing if it wasn't for Ron Anderson. I mean, what, did you have a moment in your, in your late 20s, early 30s where you're like, you were starting to have problems with your voice that didn't occur prior? Like all of a sudden I was like, like two weeks ago I could do this. And now what's, what's going on? Yeah, you do start to notice it's not, it's not as resilient. Um, there was nothing that triggered me going to see Ron. It was it was because Susan Silver and Eric Hoppe at Silver Management had taken me under their wing. And Susan at the time was married to a fantastic singer by the name of Chris Cornell. And yeah. Chris had seen this guy named Ron Anderson. And they and she they felt like it would be great if I could get him with Ron. Because they they I think they saw the writing on the wall. At that point, I was in my mid 20s and they knew I was going to be touring a lot and, and it would right. be good if I had you know a better understanding because yeah I would just go up there and sing I wouldn't you know I learned to sing initially from singing along with songs in the key of life it was purely Stevie Wonder and that's how I learned to sing right and I didn't do it well because Stevie Wonder Stevie Wonder but I was trying to trying to you know incorporate his approach to things and so yeah it was it was that moment that was the I'm telling you, I really do believe if that wouldn't have happened, I would probably be a school teacher right now. I think Ron Anderson essentially gave me the the keys to the you know to unlock you know the the potential uh, more than anything, not just expanding. I don't know how much of a difference you notice with your range, um, but for for me, it definitely unlocked a few more notes, which helped. Yeah. But it was the it was the consistency more than anything. Let me. I have a question. Did you? I mean, because it's a really hard technique. It's an old, if I'm not mistaken, it's an old opera technique. I think I think it's bel canto is what you call it. Right. Did you initially struggle with, because it's a real challenge to bridge your chest voice into your head when you would go up, where it would be kind of abrasive and you'd have to, you know, because I, I even, it, even some of the early recordings I did with up to, up to you know, probably 2000, 14 I was still I still was doing things wrong where it was getting too too head voice right how long did it take you to get get that all massaged out Ron was he you know it you know after about six months of going to Ron Anderson I was like you know this doesn't make any sense I'm just doing the same thing over and over again in different keys but it, what it was doing it was training the, the it was the connectivity of it all it right, was the right. diaphragm, the chest voice, the head voice. And, you know, it, he's not the kind of vocal coach that would, you know, hey, show me how to sing Whole Lot of Love from Led Zeppelin. No, he's not going to do that. I mean, he, he, you know, he's an opera, opera singer himself. And for me, it took a minute, but over the course of about five years, my voice went up one octave. I could hit, I could, before I was like, I was just, I was just shelved at a certain point. Right. And right. I listened to my early records and I go, wow, that is a different guy. And, you know, now it's, it's, it, it even I'm 43, I actually sing higher now. I raise keys um, live a lot of times from the album, wow. previous albums, because it's just more comfortable. It's more in my, my power. Wow. And, and I found a lot of parallels to the guitar, meaning the faster you play or the more, you know, the, 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 the higher the velocity. Um, you kind of back off a little bit. You don't double, you don't press harder. You you let the instrument bloom and do the work. And that's 
that's what I, that's what the whole regimen of that, that, that vocal instruction taught me. Tell me a little bit about your charity work, because, you know, I, I was reading about that. You're, you're on the board of directors of the Mead Food Bank. Um, you're a big supporter of the fund for, for, for animal welfare, and you have your own uh, Future Song Foundation. You know, how, how important is that element of giving back? You know, you know, because we're all very lucky to do this for a living and been doing this, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. And, and you know, tell me how you started, especially the Future Song you know, Foundation, you know, like, like helping other musicians. Yeah, that, that's a, you know, it's funny, my wife and I, we were, we were in, in Europe, and I was on tour probably 2014 or something. And, and just like what you just touched on was, I was, I was very aware of how incredibly lucky I was. And I felt like, well, now it's time to, you know, it's, let's, let's try and do something for the community. You know, yeah. we live in Spokane and, and I remember we were in a coffee shop and, and we, we were talking about music programs in schools and how they've been defunded and what an important, how, what a profound impact having those programs in place when I was going through school was, you know, I was in yeah. the marching band and then the jazz band and the symphonic band and, and I, and I loved it. Um, so we saw a need in the community and we were really just trying to figure out a way to pick up the slack. So uh, got off the road and talked with some some friends here in town, one of which also happened to be my guitar instructor, Joe Brash, who was, you know, started teaching me when I was, you know, I don't know, 16, 17, and has been a part of the journey, amazing guitar player, wonderful human being. And uh, we went to lunch one day with some like-minded individuals and we're like, let's, let's set up a, a, a foundation to help children in particular um, who can't afford musical instruments or uh, instruction or whatever it is. And so it's, yeah, in the last X amount of years, it's blossomed and we've been able to do things for the community, being able to get a lot of instruments into the hands of kids in, in certain school districts where the funds were, were cut. Uh, recently, we were able to set up some uh, scholarships for, for uh, kids who want to go. It, strangely enough, to the college I went to, the, the Spokane Falls Community College. And so, yeah, it's been really, it's, it's the idea of just paying it forward, you know, and, 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 and uh, hopefully my dream is there would be a child that will uh, have an opportunity they wouldn't have had through the foundation. And um, then in X amount of years, they'll be able to do the same thing and it'll just keep, you know, the circle will continue. So that's all we can do. You know, the most rewarding thing about it is like, you know, we've been giving away instruments and gear and stuff like that for, I don't know, 12 years, 13 years now. And, and you don't realize it because you're just, you're moving. And the, the, the most rewarding thing is when like you're at a meet and greet or something and a, and a kid who's now in their early 20s said, hey, listen, you know, I, I got those, you know, the, your foundation gave us those guitar strings, you know, in school or, you know, we set up a guitar program, you know, a couple of schools. And now, now I'm in a band and I'm playing. And I go, that's the whole point. You know, you know, it's all that work it comes full circle because it's because you change the trajectory of, the, of somebody's life, you know. Right. And, and there's room for everybody. You know, some people go, oh, no, you know, you're, you're creating your own competition. Like, it's like, it's not a competition. It's no. You know, it's, it's, no. that, it's that kind of thing. Miles, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. Um, it, like I said, I just have this odd case of deja vu. This, this whole this whole interview. I, 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 I'm sorry if I'm a little off, ladies and gentlemen. I, I, I feel like we've done this before. <laughs> I'm I'm actually glad we're doing. I'm I just 
thoroughly enjoyed talking with you, Joe. I think you're an awesome cat. So thanks for having me on. Thanks, Miles. And, and, and thank you for watching. This is live from Nerdville from Nashville, Tennessee. We'll be broadcasting here for the next couple of months uh, while I produce Eric Gales's record and, and just hang out in beautiful downtown Nash Vegas. Miles Kennedy, the legendary Miles Kennedy. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on. See you next time, guys.